God, we love you, and we're so thankful that there is a resurrection to look forward to. God, that we don't just have hope in this life only, but there's a life to come. Um, God, that you are reigning and ruling on high. Well, so we set our hope there this morning, God, and I, I pray that um, as we are nearing um, Easter, Holy Week, God, that we're nearing the day when you ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and uh, you're examining the temple for seven days, and then you die on the cross for our sins. Three days later, you rise again from the dead. Lord, I, I pray that our hearts would grow expectant, excited to, to, to see you face to face when you come again. Lord. God, I pray for other churches in our city and our community, um, Lord, this morning, that they would preach your word effectively, that you'd bring revival and awakening in our town, Lord, that all the men and women that are coming in, uh, whether it's from Korea or, or from all over the United States to, to Richmond Hill, Lord, that they would find a home and a church that preaches your word, that they can hear the gospel for the first time. Lord, I pray for people that are coming in that have never heard the gospel, that they'd come to Richmond Hill and, and hear the gospel because of the churches here. Lord, empower us as your church um, this morning. Lord, I pray for me as I preach your word, that you'd make it clear this morning. Um, be with me in my weakness, that your word might shine forth. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Y'all have a seat. All right. So Andrew is not here. I'm sorry. Um, he and Annie are at a, a retreat this weekend, and it's the first Sunday he's been away on a Sunday morning. Uh, he had his grandfather's funeral, but besides that, so um, really excited for him and Annie. I think it's good for them, and um, even hearing briefly from him, I think coming back refreshed, uh, going to come back refreshed from that, and so excited for it. Um, and uh, this morning, you got me, and just to warn you, this is a heavier sermon this morning, okay? One of the beautiful things about expository preaching is we go through books of the Bible, and we don't skip things, okay? So I'm not going to skip it. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, sin and repentance, and, and we're going we're gonna to dig in there. So just want to prepare you. I don't have as many stories today as normal. So if you brought your uh, elementary school student in, hoping that they would laugh again, th there might not be that many jokes today. Um, so I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, I'm excited to do this. And, and one of the reasons I'm excited is uh, chapter 19 in Acts, so go ahead and turn there with me. Chapter 19 is about the church in Ephesus. And it's when the church basically is birthed. And, and one of the cool things about Ephesus is the Ephesian church is mentioned more in the New Testament than any other church. So we have the initial evangelization with Apollos in Acts chapter 18 that Andrew covered last week. And then Paul comes down there in this chapter and plants the church. We see his whole ministry there for two years. And then Paul leaves them um, and he goes on to, to plant other churches. Then he comes back and meets with the elders in Acts chapter 20 in Miletus. They have this really emotional farewell where he tells them he's never going to see him again, and he, and he commissions them. And then Paul goes to Jerusalem where he's arrested, goes to Rome. While he's in Rome, he writes them a letter called the Letter to the Ephesians. There we go, Bible scholars. <laughs> uh, letter to the Ephesians, right? Uh, and, then, um, and then at the end in Revelation, uh, this apocalypse that John has, Jesus gives seven letters or seven messages to seven churches. And the first one is the church of the Ephesians, right? There we go, man. A lot of interaction here today. Uh, so I'm trying to get y'all in this because gonna be, we're going we're gonna to dive in pretty soon. So the Church of the Ephesians, so it's a pretty cool to get a full picture of it. But today, we're going to look at three stories from the church in Ephesus this morning. And through those, we're going to see three transformations that happen in the Christian life. Okay? The first story, we're going to see that they move or transform from familiar to family. Um, and the second story, we're going to see that they move from family to freedom. And in the th third story, they're going to move from freedom to to faithfulness, okay? So let's start reading. Um, Acts chapter 19, verse 1. 
And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Okay, so real, real quick, I'm going to pause here. Paul went around the top of the Mediterranean Sea and came to Ephesus from Corinth. And then Apollos goes over the sea to Corinth. So they switch places, right? And they never actually end up meeting. So Paul is coming into Ephesus, which is where Apollos preached last week when we heard that he was preaching the baptism of John, okay? So that's, that's where we are in this narrative. So back in verse 1. And there in Ephesus, he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one that was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, which is basically their Richmond Hill City Center, right? Um, this continued for two years so that the resi- all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All right, this is what I want you to see. This church goes from familiar with Christ to family with Christ, okay? Look in verse 1. When Paul comes to Ephesus, it says, there he found some disciples, okay? Luke is intentionally vague here, okay? He usually says the disciples. He says some disciples. And what he's saying is, is he's found some disciples. He goes to the synagogue, and there are some men there who claim Christ in some way. They've been baptized into something, and they're just some disciples, okay? We don't exactly know who they are. They, they identify with Christ. They, they claim him. They're an associate with him, but, but they're not yet family, they're not yet the disciples. They're not yet fully all in to Christ. And then we look at verse 9. Look down with me in verse 9. A transition happens, a transformation. When the Jews became stubborn, they started persecuting Paul and his message. It says he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. Took the disciples. There, there's a transformation that happens in these verses where they go from some disciples, they go from familiar with Jesus to the disciples. They become family with Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at that. What happened? How did that happen? And here's the main point at this point. They go from familiar to family by believing and receiving the gospel of grace. Okay? They go from familiar with Jesus to family by believing and receiving the gospel of grace. So let's walk through this, okay? So Paul gets there. He walks into Ephesus, and he finds some disciples, okay? He probably goes to the synagogue, and he's like, hey, I want to preach Jesus. And they say, well, there's some Jesus freaks over there. They got baptized. Go talk to them, right? So he goes over, talks to these men, and he's hanging out with them. He's probably teaching them, worshiping with them, praying with them. And he begins to notice there's something missing in their life, in their Christian faith. They are not, they're not walking in what they preach, right? Right? They're, they're, not, they're not fully walking and experiencing in what they profess. Maybe they're missing sincerity in their worship. Maybe it was joy in the midst of trials. Maybe it was a love for one another. Maybe it was a mission out. We don't know what it was, but there's something missing that leads Paul to ask the question, which is offensive question, right? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, right? He said, hang on, something's missing here. Did y'all receive the Holy Spirit? And they say, no. Like, we didn't even know we could receive the Holy Spirit. What is this that you're talking about? And he says, into what were you baptized then? All right, let me point something out here. What he does not say is he does not say, well, hey, you didn't get the Spirit. Let me lay hands on you so you can receive the Holy Spirit, right? Why doesn't he say that? 
Because biblically, the Holy Spirit comes when we accept faith in Christ. So the implication is that if they didn't have the Holy Spirit, then they didn't have Christ. They didn't know Jesus, right? Um, and, and when he lays hands on them later, the Holy Spirit is stirred up, but that Holy Spirit came into them when they received Christ. It says in Ephesians chapter 1 that Paul writes, writes later to this church that when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, the promise of those who believed in him, right? The Holy Spirit is our inheritance as Christians. So what Paul says is that you didn't have the Spirit, so therefore you don't have Christ. So therefore, there's something wrong with the gospel that you received. So he says, into what were you baptized? In other words, what gospel did you get baptized into? What gospel was preached to you, right? And they say, into John's baptism, right? And that's what Andrew was talking about. You were here last week. Um, It says up in Acts chapter 18 that Apollos was preaching, and he spoke accurately the things concerning the word, though he knew only the baptism of John, okay? So what, what, what basically Luke is leading us to believe here is that Apollos comes to Ephesus, and he starts preaching the message of John the Baptist. So probably what happened is Apollos got converted under the ministry of John the Baptist. He got baptized with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, repent and believe in the gospel. Um, The Messiah is coming. Wait on him. And so Apollos got baptized. He accepted that, and then he went off to Alexandria. He started preaching there, and then he comes to Ephesus and starts preaching this message of repent and believe. The Messiah is coming. But he hadn't heard that Jesus came yet. He hadn't heard that the Messiah has come and he's died and he's risen from the grave. And so these disciples in Ephesus, they, all they knew was John's baptism. They knew to repent and believe and to wait on the Messiah that was to come. So they were waiting men. That's what they're, that's what they're doing. And so then we come to the moment when they become family. So they said, we're baptized into John's baptism. So Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. John called you to repentance and to wait on the Savior that was to come. But I've got good news for you because the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus and he is here. And then they believe on Jesus and they get baptized again, right? Because their first baptism was pre-conversion. They didn't know Christ and they had gotten baptized the first time. So they get converted. They have the evidence of the Holy Spirit. They get baptized again into the name of Jesus. And so here's the question for us this morning from this passage. What's the difference between the gospel of John the Baptist and the gospel of Jesus Christ? Okay, because that's when the change happened. The change happened when they heard the gospel of Jesus. They were believing the gospel of John beforehand. What's the difference? Well, John came preaching repentance, like I said. He said, repent, repent, repent. There's your sin. You're not living up to the law. Return to the law. Repent from your sin. Come back to the Lord. Wait on the Messiah. Wait on the Savior who was to come, right? John was constantly calling people back to the law. He exposed their sin. He called them to repentance. He called them to live holy lives. And these disciples were probably pretty somber people, like continuing to see their sin over and over and over again, but there was no Savior yet. He had not come yet. In Romans 7, Paul describes it this way. He says that we, all of us, were married to the law. Right? Everyone that's born was married to the law. You were in a relationship with the law. You must obey the law of Christ. You're born into the family of God. You're married to the law. It's a, a metaphor. And being married to the law is a miserable marriage, right? It's, it's like being married to a demanding husband who is constantly shouting out your failures, telling you what you're doing wrong, saying, you're not doing this right, you're not doing this right. And not only that, but he doesn't lift a finger to help you. He's powerless to help you. He, he shouts out what you're doing wrong. He doesn't help you at all. And not only that, but he's always right right? He's always right. How many live with a spouse who's always right? Don't raise your hand, please. Um, He's always right. The law is always right. 
right? So it's just depressing. It's, it's discouraging. And not only that, to complete the picture, the only way out of this marriage is death. So death do us part. And, and Jesus said in Matthew that the law will never pass away. So you're married to this law that the only way out is death, and it's never dying, right? Pretty depressing, right? That's the gospel that the, these disciples were believing, right? But Paul says in Romans chapter 7, he, he continues the story, and he says, but you have died. You have died through the body of Christ, right? So now you're out of that marriage to the law so that you can belong to another, to Jesus, right? And now, if you are a Christian in the room this morning, if you have accepted Christ and believed on him and surrendered your life to him, you belong to another. You don't belong to the law of condemnation anymore. You belong to the Jesus of grace, right? And that husband, Jesus as a husband, is gracious. Yes, he's always right, but he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, he intercedes for us, praying for us before the Father. He advocates for us when the enemy comes and accuses us. He prays for you. He longs for your growth. He is for you and not against you. And Jesus not only sympathizes with you, but he, unlike the law, helps you. He helps you in your weakness. He helps you in your prayers. The Holy Spirit comes alongside you to bear fruit in your life. You want to share the gospel, the Holy Spirit helps you. You want to kill sin, the Holy Spirit helps you. You want to worship in spirit and truth, the Holy Spirit helps you. Christ is a good husband to us. And not only that, but he's not a distant husband. We've been brought near, right? It says in Ephesians later in chapter 4, Paul says that we who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is a close husband. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life like he did with these disciples, he's there to stay. He grieves with you in the midst of your sin and then helps you repent. He's, he's willing to be quenched and stay and remain with you. The Holy Spirit isn't in and out of your life based on how you're doing. He remains with you. We have a good God, a gracious husband in Christ who is with us. No longer the demanding law, but the gracious Savior. The question for us this morning is, have you received this gospel? Have you actually moved from an associate with Jesus to adopted as a son or daughter? Have you moved from familiar with Christ to family? Have you moved from a churchgoer to a Christian? Like, do you come here on Sunday? Do you associate in your workplace with, with Christ? Like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church, but you don't actually know him. Like, you've never actually fully surrendered your life and received him. You don't seek him in your off time. You just come here on Sunday. You go through these motions. Is that you? Christ is not looking for associates. He's looking for family. He's not just looking for churchgoers. He's looking for people that can be sons and daughters in his family. He's not just looking for club members, right? He's looking for members of his family, right? That is the call of the gospel. And if that's you, if you have a question, I would encourage you, dig in there. Ask the Lord, God, am I, am I part of your family? Or am I just bumping along, connecting myself to the church, but I don't actually know you in a vital relationship with you? And there's another question in this. Are you part of the family, but you've backslidden? You've kind of gone from, you were, you were seeking the Lord at one point in your life. You were all in. You were walking in prayer. You were walking with Jesus. And then life has just gotten in the way, and you've backslidden. And now you just come to church. You barely make it here. You don't, you're not walking with the Lord actively. And, and I want to call you. Will you come back to the family? Will you come back to a vibrant and active relationship with the God that's with you? He's for you. He's, he's working in your life. Will you receive that and walk with him again? That is the call of this first section, this first story in this. So where are you today? Have you gone from a familiar to family? Have you come back to God in your life? Um, this is the first transformational moment. They went from familiar to family. Before we go on, uh, it's beautiful, isn't it? 
that, that, that we have a God that is gracious and not demanding on us, that we have a God that bears with us in our sins and our failures, we have a God that comes alongside us and, and doesn't come alongside us to, to tell us all that we're doing wrong, but to help us obey. When we're crippled, he slings our arm over and he walks alongside of us. He is a good God and a good Savior. So that's the first point, moving from familiar to family. Let's keep reading for the second point. So Acts 19, verse 11. All right, this is a weird story, okay? Just preparing you, strange. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaimed. Right? A little quick background. At that time in Ephesus, this demonic warfare, you have these exorcists, and they would basically call on the highest spirit they knew. So if there's a more powerful spirit than the one that they were in a relationship with, they would start associating themselves with that spirit. So these exorcists would have thought, well, Jesus is the most powerful one. Like, he's casting out demons with a handkerchief. I'm going to associate with him. Well, look what happens. The spirit answers back. And he said, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was this evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, and so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Told you it was a weird story. Um, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And check out this reaction. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's about $6 million in today's money. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The next transformation we see in the Ephesian church is from family to freedom through radical repentance. They move from family to freedom through radical repentance. They were already part of the family of God. They'd been converted. They'd been part of the church. They'd been around for a while. They were part of the family, but they still had some of their old practices that they were hanging on to, right? And that's a lot of your story. It's my story. Or you, you came into the family of God, and maybe this is where you are right now, and yet there are still things from your unsaved life that you are clinging to. Maybe you haven't been convicted of them, or maybe you have, and you're still holding on to them. This is where this church was. They had these evil practices, this demonic stuff that they were hanging on to. And before we distance ourselves and say, well, man, I don't, I don't practice witchcraft. I don't have any magic books. Like, that's not me. Let's bring it in. Let's bring it into our day. So every culture has its prevailing sins and vices, Right? And if Ephesus at the time, it was filled with superstition, the occult, magic, demonic warfare, all that kind of thing. Like, that was the thing they did. They had the Temple to Artemis. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. It had 127 columns. It had this huge idol in it that was made out of this black rock that fell from the sky. It was the story. And it was carved at some point in ancient past, and it was grotesque. So they would come and worship it. There were cult prostitutes. It was disgusting. But that was what the city, the trade of the city, was built around. And also, because it was such a worshipful city... To these demons, Caesar put his own temple there. So there's also Caesar worship happening there. So this entire city, anyone that would have come to Christ out of the city would have practiced some kind of demonic activity, whether it's magic or the occult or whatever it was. So that's where this church was coming from. And even some of the Jewish people would have been mixed in in their culture. When our Southern American culture is different, right? Like that is not the prevailing sin and vice of our day. Like 
Anybody curse your neighbor's dog before you got here because they didn't mow their grass? Anybody? No. I hope, I hope, don't raise your hand if you did or come talk to me later. But that's not what we struggle with. But in our culture, it's totally different. It's alcohol, right? You're around Savannah. I remember I moved to Savannah, and I was like, oh, my gosh, everybody drinks a lot here. Like this area, it's, it's the prevailing vice of our, of our area. And, and whether it's a, a social party thing or whether it's a coping mechanism that you do every day when you get home from work or every other day, it is a vice in our culture, right? We've got materialism, right, and money. Like, it is a vice here, like, like the, the thirst for more and more and more. And, and is that ever quenched? No, but we keep longing for it. That, that's a vice in our culture, pride and ambition in the workplace. We're constantly wanting more. We want the next promotion, the next job. We want to be recognized as something. Even if you're a stay-at-home mom, like, there's that pressure to be the best mom. Your kids are the best behaved, and they're, they're doing the best in school, the best in sports, or whatever it is, that pride and ambition. It's self-image. That self-image, even if you're not on social media, it's deadly on social media, but even if you're not, we live in a culture that's obsessed with ourselves, with the image that we portray to other people, right? Those are some of the sins and vices that infect our hearts, and they may not be as blatantly demonic as what was going on here in Ephesus at the day, but they are just as offensive to God, and they are just as ruinous to your soul. So let's jump in, like good note, right? Told you the heavy sermon. So we're going to jump in and look at the three stages of this radical repentance. There are three stages we see here. So let's start in verse 17. In fear, halfway through, in fear fell upon them all. In fear fell upon them all. The first step in radical repentance is a fear of God and sin. Okay, so these disciples are bumping along. They just heard the gospel of grace and they're like, praise Jesus. Like I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. God loves me. This is awesome. So they're bumping along thinking God loves everyone, right? God's love, telling everybody about the love of Christ. And then all of a sudden, boom, this Skiba thing happens. And God is not who they thought he was. God is not like the Easter bunny hopping around, throwing candy in anyone's basket who holds it out, right? God is picky. God is holy. He's not who they thought he was. God is not content to be used or manipulated. God is not content to be owned and called on like a bellboy, like ring the bell and come and serve my needs like these sons of Sceva wanted him to do. Right? He is holy, and he will not associate with those who continue to cling to their sin. And so what this fear of God produced in them is a zeal for a pure heart, a zeal for a pure heart that we're going to see in a second. The second thing they learned to fear is they learned a fear of sin. These sins that they had been forgiven of, that they were still clinging to, that they thought, well, God covers it, right? The liberty, freedom, and the, and the blood of Jesus, like, there's grace, amen. They were clinging to them. What they, what they began to see is that these sins are dangerous. Like, they're not, they're not, they're not these simple things that I could, it's like a hamster. You can pull it out of a cage and pet it and then stick it back in, and it's okay. Like, the goal of sin is to own you, to own your life, to rule you, to be master over you. And some of these sins that Maybe you're petting, maybe you've got a small amount, little dabbles of it in your life. The goal of sin is to own your life, to wreck your world, to ruin your faith, to destroy your soul. It's a good message right there, right? Happy, right? No, that's the goal of sin. And if we continue to dabble in it, if we continue to play around with it, it will ruin our soul, right? And that's what they learn. They see this demon that they were all like, you know, worshiping and, and kind of playing around with. All of a sudden, he jumps on these men, overpowers seven men, leaves them naked in humility. They're like, I, that's not what I want with my life. And let me tell you, these are healthy fears. You will not walk in radical repentance until you have a fear of God and a fear of sin, right? And God, if you ask him for it, will give you that fear. Because if we don't have fear, what we remain is an apathy. It's like, well, it's fine. Like, God doesn't care. 
doesn't care that I'm walking in sin, and, and this sin's not that bad. It's, it's okay. I can, I, can, I'm, I'm, I can handle. I can handle that many drinks. I can, I can handle having this. I can handle having that. I can handle having this type of car or this type of house or this type of whatever it is. I can handle it. I'm fine. But when you begin to, to draw near to the Lord and he shows his holiness to you, you begin to develop a fear of God and a fear of sin. Something changes in us. What about you? Where are you at? Do you have a fear, a healthy fear of God and a fear of sin? Look at the second point. Verse 18, also, many of those who are now believers, so these are, these are these disciples that had come into the fold, they came confessing and divulging their practices. The second step in radical repentance is to walk in the light, to walk in the light. They did two things. They confessed and divulged. Confession is stating the truth about something. So to confess is to say, I am a sinner and God is holy, and those can't come together. Like, those don't have fellowship. So that's what confession is. When you confess, you're saying, I'm in sin, God is holy, those don't go together, I need a reconciler, right? I need Jesus to forgive my sin, right? But that's not enough to walk in the light. They do something else. It's called divulging, right? What is divulging? Divulging is taking what is hidden, all of it, and exposing it to the light. It is laying things bare. See, often, as the church, we confess, man, I sinned this week. That's it. Or, man, I'm really struggling with greed. Or I'm really struggling with loving my wife. I'm really struggling with anger. It's like, that is not divulging. Like, divulging is, man, I got mad at my kids this week, and I, and I disciplined them too hard. And, and, then, and then I didn't talk to my son for a day afterwards. I am a broken man. Will you pray for me? That's divulging. And that is the only way you're going to be set free from sin, is if you were divulging, if you were laying bare your soul and not allowing the enemy to keep things hidden in the dark. And that is what they do here. Let me read this passage in first john and man if this is you right now um if you feel like you've got sins in your life that you are are keeping hidden i would encourage you today go home and read this passage first john 1 5 through 9 says this john says this is the message that we have heard from christ and proclaimed to you god is light and in him is no darkness at all if we say we have fellowship with god while we walk in darkness we lie we don't practice the truth but if we walk in the light, check this out. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The next step in radical repentance is walking in the light. And we have to. You can't do it alone. You can't fight sin alone. Um, you, you cannot overcome the lies in your own heart on your own. We must walk into the light. If you're married, walk into the light with your spouse. If you've got a, a brother in Christ, if you're, if you're single, find a brother that you can walk totally in the light with. Or find a sister if you're a lady. And walk totally in the light with, to share, to unpack your soul before, so that they can then speak right into those places of hurt and sin and pain and say, God loves you. It's not okay that you're there, but God loves you in the midst of it. And I'm going to walk alongside you as you repent. That's what walking in the light is, and that's what they did here in Acts chapter 19. All right, the third thing they do is this. Verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, and they burned them in the sight of all, Okay. They burn them. So step three in radical repentance is put it to death. Put it to death. They didn't vow to stop practicing magic. Any, anyone in this room made a vow to stop sinning before? I have. All right, how'd that go for you? Uh, not well, right? They didn't make a vow like, I'm, I'm never going to touch it again. Like, I'm never going to touch my book. I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to practice it. They didn't say, man, I'll just stick it in the attic. I'm not going to touch it. I'll box it up. I'll, I'll, I'll duct tape it right up there. They didn't even say, man, I'll sell it on eBay. It won't be in my house anymore. No, no, no. They put it to death. They took these books worth $6 million, and they burned them in the square, right? 
they probably looked like crazy people, right? But they were so driven by a fear of God and a fear of sin and walking into the light. They're like, we got to get this thing out of my life as soon as possible. And this is the, this is the context that, that Jesus calls us to. In Matthew chapter 5, um, Jesus gives us a template for repenting of sin. Um, and get ready for this one. Uh, he says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. That's a good message right there, right? If your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Guys, the, the biblical paradigm for repentance is radical. It is, it is taking any avenue, anything in your life that is leading you into sin again and again and saying, I will cut that out of my life for the sake of my soul, for the sake of my witness, for the sake of my God. That is what repentance is. And if we, if, if repentance isn't logical. Radical repentance is not logical. What logic is, is, hey, let's sell our books, right? And then we'll give the money to the poor. Or maybe you've got a problem with your cell phone and, and maybe it's looking up inappropriate things or whatever it is. Like, well, I need my phone for work, so I'm going to keep it around. Listen, it would be better for you to get fired than to continue walking in sin. Or maybe it's alcohol for you. Maybe, maybe you, keep, you can't stop doing that after work drink uh, because you've had a long day. Maybe that's it for you. And it's like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep the bar in my house, but I'll, I'll lock it and I'll put the key up in my bedroom and then I won't get it, right? Um, or, or maybe I'll still go to that bar, but only have one or whatever it is. And you're, you're toying with, you're getting logical. Listen, Satan will beat you at that game every single time. He's way smarter than you are. And he'll get in there and he'll lie and he'll say, man, you, you can handle this. Like you don't need to really like, you don't need to burn the books. Like just sell them or just put them in the attic, right? He's logical and he'll trick you into hanging on to sin. But the paradigm for the Christian is to put it to death. And that is exactly what these men and women did. Here are these two quotes, one from Charles Spurgeon. He said this, is there any habit, any practice that you have got that defiles your soul? If Christ loves you and you have come to trust in him, you will make short work of it. Have done with it, have done with it forever. John Owen, um, the pastor in the 1700s said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Are you, are you being killed? <laughs> By sin is sin eating you alive from the inside the only way out of that is to walk in radical repentance so walk in radical repentance and look at the effects of this in verse 20 so the word of the lord so he just repented and then and then luke says so that that so means because of what just happened so the word of the lord continued to increase and prevail mightily the word of the lord will not increase which is bear fruit in your life, or prevail, which is kill sin in your life, until you have confessed and divulged sin and put to death any and every questionable practice. Let me say that again. The word of the Lord will not increase and prevail in your life until you have confessed and divulged every sin that you're walking in, and you have put to death every questionable practice. Some of you in this room are trying to read the Bible. You're trying to pray. You're trying to lead your family. And you're wondering, like, why, why is this not connecting? Like, why am I not growing? Like, why am I not increasing? Why am I not prevailing in sin? And the first place to look is, are you killing sin? Are you repenting? Are you, do you have a fear of sin and a fear of God? Are you putting it to death? Are you walking in the light? Are you walking out of that sin and towards the Lord in holiness? And here's the beautiful flip side of that. If you kill sin, you walk into the light with it. If you put it to death in your life, then the word of God will prevail. 
and will increase in your life. If you are radical about your sin and put it to death over and over and over and you get tired and you're still putting death over and over again, the word will prevail and it won't just prevail in you. The sense here in this text, the word continue to increase and prevail means it increased in the family. It increased in the, in the community. It increased in Asia. The word increased so much through their repentance that later on we're about to read these silversmiths in Ephesus said, the whole world is about to go after Jesus. Like, like Paul is turning the whole world against us. All of Asia is turning against Artemis, right? When, when we begin to repent, the gospel spreads. When we begin to work, walk in holiness, will you begin to walk in holiness today? I encourage you, look at 1 John 1. Look at Matthew 5 and ask the Lord, what do I need to do to radically repent from this sin and invite someone else to come along with you? All right, last point. We're gonna read this next section and it's long and I've got a very short thing to say afterwards, but um, another strange story. Uh, so buckle in, we're gonna start in verse 21. After those events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And check out this reaction, this impassioned speech. When they heard this, they were enraged. And we're crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together to the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. All right, weird story. We basically have a mob, right, which is happening. So the, the, the last transformation that we see in this church is the church moves from freedom, this newfound freedom that they had in repentance, to faithfulness. They move from freedom to faithfulness. There's two evidences of this. The first is in verse 21. So after Paul saw their repentance and the word prevailing, 
it says he resolved in the spirit to leave, right? He basically looked at them and he said, my work here is done, right? And so he's ready to pass the church off to these elders. And so he sends on his traveling companions ahead of them to prepare the way. And he stays in Ephesus for a couple more weeks. And during this time, there's a, there's a riot. Um, this guy, Demetrius, a silversmith, gets all the craftsmen together who built shrines and things. And, and that's basically the whole city. The whole economy of the city is gathered together and he riles them up against these disciples. And they rush them into the theater and begin persecuting them, right? The second thing we see about their faithfulness is in verse 30 through 31. So Paul not only thinks that they're ready to leave this church, but in verse 30, this commotion happens. The disciples are are brought into the theater. There's a mob. They're probably going to get killed, right? This is this kind of scenario. And Paul is defensive. He's like a dad. He's like rushing in there, ready to come defend them. And then some disciples who hadn't got swept up in the mob are basically standing at the door. This is the picture. They're standing at the door of the theater. And they're, and they're saying, wait, hang on. Where are you going? Paul's like, I got to get in there. Like, I got to defend my people. And they said, hang on. Before you go in, did, didn't you tell us that persecutions await you in every city? Like, didn't you tell us that, that, that as a Christian, we're going to experience persecution? And I'm sure Paul said, yeah, I did. And he said, didn't you tell us that Jesus said that in this world, there's going to be trouble, but to take heart, I've overcome the world. Yeah, and said, didn't you tell us that Jesus said that the world will hate me, and therefore it'll hate you as it hated me? Paul said, yeah, and I'm sure they said, well, let us handle this. This is our birthright. This is what comes with being a follower of Jesus. And didn't you tell us that that the only way we're going to grow in our faith is through discipline, through suffering, through trials, through remaining faithful? Yeah, I did tell you that. Let us experience that. Let us undergo this persecution. Let us suffer so that we may be faithful to the Lord. We might mature in our faith. That's what happens here. And Paul says, okay. Paul didn't normally say, okay. He doesn't normally give in, but he steps back and allows them to undergo these trials. How does someone go from the excitement of newfound freedom to a life of faithfulness? You go from freedom to faithfulness through being trained by trials over time. By being trained by trials over time. And this is, the, this is the message of the New Testament. Again and again and again, we're trained through trials. In Hebrews chapter 12, Paul writes this. He says, Our Father, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later on, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Right? To those who've been trained by it, we are trained, we develop faithfulness through experiencing trials and allowing them to train us. Not just experiencing trials and moaning and complaining and escaping and, and running away and, and talking about it, but experiencing trials, trusting the Lord, walking with Him, and maturity is developed in our faith. And that's exactly what's happening here in Acts. The, the sense here, the town clerk calmed down this commotion, but Luke didn't share this to tell us, hey, everything's okay now in Ephesus. The, the sense here is that this is, this is na- from now on, everyone in the city hates these Christians. All the craftsmen see them as, as interrupting their trade. And the church is now under continual persecution. And yet God's going to use that persecution to, to create this faithful church that is still going strong 50 years later when John writes a letter to him in Revelation. That is the sense here. God grows us to faithfulness through trials over time. Let me just take a moment to address um, those of you in the room that are in the last quarter, last third of your life, um, this is key for you. Um, a lot of you have been walking with the Lord a long time, 
and, and, and you've gone through the ups and downs of life. But, but the typical example in the Bible, as people age, is not that they get more mature and more faithful. You look at all the kings in the Old Testament, they begin to plateau, and they begin to go down, they begin to walk away from the Lord, they begin to drift. And, and listen, I, I've, I'm young, I've walked with, with a lot of people um, in their faith when they're older, and, and I have seen what happens when you begin to have your friends and your family passing away all around you, and you begin to encounter the real sadness of life and the grief, and you can no longer pretend that death is something that's distant, and, and you get sick, and then you get sick again, and then you... And you get sick again, and then, then this part of your body starts breaking, and your mind's not as clear, and, and those things can eat away at your heart and your soul and eat away at your faith, and, and, and you can begin to drift away from faithfulness, and you can just try to make it. You're just trying to survive. You're trying to just make it in, and you're thinking, God, why? Like, is this not enough? Like, can I just live in peace anymore? And, and, and men and women, I, I, I want to call you to faithfulness. All of us have known, you've been around the church long enough, men and women who have, who have finished the race well, and those of us that are young, we need to see in your life an example of someone that finishes well, that goes through these latter years of their life strong and faithful. That is not the norm, and I want to call you to it. And young men, young women, especially those of you with kids, you, you've entered the plateau of life, okay? Nothing exciting is going to happen to you for a very long time till retirement. Will you remain faithful in the plateau? But it is typical for men and women our age, in their, in their 40s and 50s, to plateau it's like life's busy, life's hard. We got kids, we got practice, we got all these things. I don't have time for blank. I don't have time for the Lord. I don't have time to pursue him. I don't have time to serve him. I don't have time to walk with him. Will you remain faithful in the midst of trials? I want to call you to that. If we have a church, even just one or two couples in our church that we get to watch walk in faithfulness as you age, that'll change a church. That'll change a church. Men and women who've been crafted and, and matured by, by hardship and have trusted the Lord through it. What does this look like? It looks like walking in blind obedience when you can't see the way forward. It looks like worshiping when you can't feel God's presence. It looks like meditating on the truth of the word when doubt is just roiling in your mind. It takes praying when you don't know what to say. And it takes saying, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before Jehoshaphat, about to get thrown into the furnace saying, God's going to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to your God. Right? That is the faith that develops faithfulness in our lives. And I would call all of us, young and old, would we enter into faithfulness? Would you take advantage of the trials and the suffering that you're experiencing this week or next week or next year and not begrudge them, escape from them, complain about them, but receive them in the gracious hand of your Father to, to craft a, a life of faithfulness in your life? Will you be trained by these trials? Let me pray this morning. The worship team gets up here to lead us. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you don't shy away from heavy sermons, from hard things. Thank you that you also don't shout at us from afar. You don't yell at us and tell us, hey, become a Christian. Hey, walk in freedom. Hey, be faithful. But you enter in with us. You come alongside us. You don't leave us. You don't forsake us. You're gracious and you're good. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use your word this morning to convict, maybe to confirm some things that you've already been doing in some of the lives of the men and women in this room, that you'd be poking at those things and you'd give them strength to, to walk into freedom. Maybe it's to become a family member of God. Maybe it's to accept the gospel of grace for the first time. Maybe, maybe it's to 
take the trials and sufferings they're experiencing to begin to walk in faith and faithfulness. God, do this in our church. Lord, we, we want to be a church of, of men and women and children that are moving on to maturity where your word is increasing and prevailing among us. God, do that. Do that in that in us. Do it in, among us, God. Lord, I pray that, that in this life, as we experience these things, Lord, we fix our eyes on Jesus, that we'd see that he has come, he has died, he has risen, he is reigning, and he will return. God, that is our great hope this morning. We love you. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Y'all stand with me together. Let's worship.